the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast. We'll help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. I'm your host, Michael Camp. This is the safe haven for former evangelicals, fundamentalists, or anyone questioning conservative Christianity, whether you are still in it or not. At the Spiritual Brew Pub, we educate people with historical facts, biblical scholarship, and personal stories to help them decide what to rethink and what to believe as they deconstruct popular versions of evangelicalism or fundamentalism. Today, we have another amazing guest with us, a documentary filmmaker who has made two immensely controversial but popular films in the last uh, seven years or so, and this is Kevin Miller. Kevin, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here. I'm glad you're on, on with us today. We're going to have a great conversation in a moment. But before uh, we get into it, I'd like to put up my guests in context of recent events and our relationship. Kevin, you and I met back in 2012 uh, in, in Seattle. Uh, I was privileged to be the host of the opening night of the film Hellbound. Uh, and I, th I believe you came with uh, Brad Jersak and Dave Rempel. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, Dave Rempel was my uh, co-producer on the film, and Brad was uh, featured in the film itself. Right. Brad was featured in the film, and uh, we had a great time um, uh, debuting it to the city of Seattle. And uh, I worked right down the street. And after the film, um, yeah, we went out for a couple beers and had a great conversation. I really uh, had fond memories of that. Um, just to let you know that the, the film opened in, in uh, the Seattle Film Festival, I think it was a week later, and I brought my family, a part of my family, and a large group of friends, and uh, everyone was very impressed with the film. Well, um, we're going to talk about Hellbound uh, today, but um, also we're going to talk about the other film that you just came out with in March, JESUSA. Uh, an exp expose of redemptive violence in religion, I would call it. And I really like the way um, uh, together uh, these films are really a brutally honest assessment of, of two views of, of the world and how a God addresses evil. Uh, in, the first, in the first film, it's really how God addresses evil in the world. And the second film, it's how humanity addresses evil in the world. And it's just fascinating to see uh, the connection between the two. And I really like the way that, that uh, you let the proponents of each view speak for themselves. 
uh, as you're interviewing people. And it's, um, it's a remarkable achievement and I congratulate you on the, on the films. I can, all I can say is when I wish these films were around when I was a young evangelical in the 1980s to help me navigate some of the doubts that I, that I was having about these issues. <laughs> so I had to wait a long time to, to, to finally see a fil films like this. So, but let's get into a conversation. Uh, I'd like to hear your story. Um, you know, what it, how did you come out of uh, your brand of Christianity? I believe you had some conservative Christian background and into making controversial movies critical of popular conservative Christian theology? Well, I, I originally was born into a family that uh, was actually came from a liberal Christian background. My grandfather was a minister in the United Church of Canada, which was a very liberal denomination. But my grandfather had a really interesting spiritual history. Um, he was a chaplain in World War II for the Canadian military, and he landed in Normandy about a week or so after D-Day. Really? Wow. Yeah, and, and then he was with the Canadian troops for the next year, fighting in some of the most difficult battles uh, of World War II, where the Germans just refused to surrender. And so he experienced a lot of horrific things uh, during that time, and he ended up suffering from PTSD afterwards, uh, what they called the nervous breakdown back then. Right. Um, but, but I think he came away from the experience essentially not believing in God anymore, and yet he persisted in working as a minister for the rest of his life because he felt that maybe he didn't believe in a personal God, but he felt that religion was a, an important socializing force in, in society. And so he was a real, you know, uh, he, he felt that morality was, was important and that religion was a place to get morality. And so he, uh, he persisted and that was a real pillar of the community type individual. Um, but uh, what happened was I, when I was nine years old, I went to a evangelical Bible camp, uh, my best friend, uh, growing up was the evangelical Christian, and he invited me to go. And on the second night there, uh, our in our cabin, our counselor presented us with the gospel presentation that many evangelicals would be familiar with. And uh, included in that was mention of hell. Um, that uh, you know, basically the story is: if you want to go to heaven, you have to say this prayer. Otherwise, you're going to be in danger of going to hell. So I said the prayer probably about six times in my bunk that night. <laughs> But just and, wanted to uh, make sure, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And probably many times after that. And, uh, but, but that kind of set me on the course toward, uh, you know, moving into the world of evangelicalism. I'm, I'm 49 years old now. I just realized that. That was actually 40 years ago this July that that happened. And it's remarkable how a decision that you make when you're nine years old can affect you for the rest of your life. Because you're either acting in concert with that decision or you're acting against that decision in one way or another. But uh, what ended up happening was I, I kept my conversion a secret because even though my parents let me go to this camp, they were pretty antagonistic to, uh, toward the evangelicals. I give you an example of that. I grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan in Canada and we were surrounded by these Mennonite, evangelical Mennonites and uh, they would never work on Sunday. But my dad uh, in the early eighties, he got himself a brand new four by four tractor that was super loud. And he loved to rev that thing on Sunday morning to let the Mennonites know he was going off to work and they weren't, uh, which was kind of killing them when the, start, when, when the sun was shining and they could be out farming and instead they had to be in church. Um, so I found myself in a strange position where I had become a Christian, at least according to the evangelical terms, but I was terrified of, that, of telling my family what I'd done. Interesting. Um, and yet I was also terrified that my family was going to go to hell. Oh, and wow. so that's quite a dilemma. Um, for a nine-year-old and uh 
you know, I guess the way I resolved it was I, I'd rather my family go to hell than tell them I became a Christian. That was, <laughs> that was the way I resolved that for many years. Um, but my parents became uh, Christians when I was in my teen years. And uh, so we ended up actually um, uh, joining the enemy, so to speak. And we started attending this evangelical Mennonite church. And that led to me going off to Bible college. I got a degree in uh, uh, biblical education and youth ministry and that sort of thing. And and that set me on the course of, of being in that world. But I really feel that uh, I was always kind of bucking at the traces. I'm the kind of person, and this, I think I get this from my mom, who just asks a lot of questions and thinks critically and is never one to quite go along with the program. And because I wasn't initially raised in that world, I always felt like a foreigner in that world and that I didn't quite fit in. And there's a lot, a lot of the story that I was being told didn't make sense. Hell being one of the key things that never, I could never resolve. Cause it was, it was like that meme you see on Facebook where Jesus is knocking on the door and says, let me in. And the person says, why? Uh, and Jesus says, so that I won't do to you what I'll, I plan to do if you don't let me in. You know, and so <laughs> yeah, how could a loving, that. how could a loving God consign right. potentially the majority of people to hell I'm always living on this razor's edge. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Am I going to go to hell? And, and so I, I like to say that with my faith, there came a, a virus that eventually overwhelmed the host. And, you know, it, for me, my way of dealing with it was to try and tackle these questions in the form of documentary films. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I relate to so much of what you, you said, um, you know, I grew up in a, kind of a liberal Methodist church. And then my teenage years, early teens, uh, mom went down and joined the local evangelical Baptist church down the road. And, <laughs> and, you know, the rest is history. I got, you know, sucked into the youth group and I heard all this preaching like you were describing. And then it just, it, you know, people in their formative years, when you're, when you're, uh, you know, not, uh, fully engaged with uh, uh, your your mature faculties, right? And then you get this this uh, message from the church that you could be going to hell, and you could, you know, you're not saved, and you're a depraved person, and you need Jesus, and all this. It's it's pretty powerful stuff. It it's it sits with you. Now, your your parents too. I mean, my parents. They eventually, they were became both my father and my mother became very devout in the evangelical church, and now they're and staunch Calvinists later. So, I, oh. interesting. Very very similar parallels with my with my story. Um, so you you dealt with it by becoming a filmmaker. Um, I don't know if this was your first film, but there, I know you did uh, produce the film. Uh, expelled no intelligence allowed um what was that about and what was your interest in and in getting involved in that film well you know i never set out to be a documentary filmmaker i actually set out to be a screenwriter um so that's what i was pursuing uh i my first movie was a movie called after which was uh basically a a, a horror film a low-budget horror film and uh it was yeah, kind of raising some interesting spiritual questions. Um, but what happened was, uh, I just through some friends uh, that I had made working on that film, I was connected with the guys who were working on this documentary called Expelled. Well, it wasn't called Expelled at the time, but it was a film that what they wanted to do was to 
tackle this question of intelligent design and really ask the question, is intelligent design science or is it religion? Is it a Trojan horse for religion? Is it a way of trying to sneak Christianity into uh, the science lab or into the classroom? And uh, it, it was the producers of the film felt that certain proponents of, of intelligent design had been unfairly maligned in that they had been somehow sidelined by say the National Institutes of Health or other scientific organizations. And that there was, they were almost saying there was a conspiracy against asking certain questions. And so they wanted to make a film that investigated that and why, was there a conspiracy against intelligent design within the world of science? And if so, why um, and uh, what could be done about it? So I was brought on initially as a consultant and then I was brought on as, as a screenwriter. So I, I, I'm, I'm credited as co-writing the film with Ben Stein, uh, who okay. is also the yeah. star. So you co-wrote it with Ben Stein of Ferris uh, Bueller's Day Off fame. Yeah. 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 And, and that was quite the thing to go from a, a low budget horror film with, a, you know, kind of a no name cast to suddenly sitting down at Ben Stein's kitchen table and, and, wow. uh, you know, beginning to hatch ideas for this film. It was, uh, you know, because especially as somebody who grew up in the 80s watching Ben Stein and it was right. a bit of, bit of a surreal moment. But it was, right, a, it, it, was, it was a very controversial film for a lot of reasons. And you know, I definitely take issue with some aspects of the film. I didn't have total creative control over that. I was just the writer. The producers definitely, um, you know, had their agenda that they wanted to pursue. But I think it asked an interesting question. I mean, really what it's a film about is, is it's a film about philosophy of science. What, what actually qualifies as science? Um, what qualifies as a scientific question? And is it possible to find signs of intelligence in nature? I think that is a scientific question. What would, if, if we were to look at, uh, you know, DNA, for instance, could we determine whether or not DNA came about um, as a result of uh, unguided uh, processes, basically uh, random mutation and natural selection, or could we detect something that had maybe guided the process? I think that's a legitimate scientific question. You could be motivated by religion to ask that question, or you could be motivated by something else, uh, maybe an interest in extraterrestrial life. You know, there's a lot of people who wonder whether or not life on Earth was actually seeded, uh, particularly human life. Um, but uh, anyway, so the film kind of delved into those questions, but it also links some of those questions with uh, Nazi eugenics and that sort of thing. And that, you know, that was a, a bridge too far for some people. Yeah, right. I understand that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think intelligent design is a legitimate question, and, uh, and uh, but I, I find I I think you interviewed some people from Discovery Institute in the film, which I'm familiar with. My father was a member there, and uh, I went to some of their annual conferences, and they had the, the the most amazing mix of people. Everyone from conservative Christians who believed in a young Earth to um you know secular scientists who had no interest in religion or god and yeah. so you had that mix of people and so i kind of gravitated to the secular side because i i just thought the other side was just too anti-evolution on everything as if so it's like well you know i i asked the question and make the case that you know there could be such a thing as intelligent evolution i mean you know the, the this is it's not just uh, it do doesn't mean evolution is completely uh, uh, out to lunch. It's it just means that there are some issues with evolution, the way that it's um, uh, 
described in, in scientific circles. And those questions are legitimate and they need to be addressed. And there's even a lot of evolutionists over the years that have actually had addressed the same questions. They just didn't come up with intelligent design. They came up with other things to explain them, you know? So um, it's well, very it's, interesting. Go yeah, ahead. And when, what, what you see happening in the debate over evolution, um, I mean, and some people would say there is no debate over evolution, but people who question the theory of evolution is, is you, you run up against what's called settled science. So this idea that there's a consensus and uh, you know that the science on this is settled. You'll you'll see the same dynamic happen with uh, climate change science, or, and now with uh, the, uh, the the pandemic. And it's interesting because I find myself on different sides of this this idea of settled science or sort of a consensus view. So you know, with uh, with expelled, we challenge the consensus. Um, but you know, I find myself in the midst of the pandemic really championing championing the consensus view and 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 just trying to uh you know get people to listen to the experts on this issue because it's so vital that we have the best minds guiding us um so it's interesting that i i've noticed that the situation we're in right now i'm naturally somebody who questions authority but i, I find myself really siding with authorities right now because i feel that so many things that we uh rely on academia the media science uh, even government and that sort of thing, people's uh, level of trust in these, uh, you know, civilizing forces in the world is is at an all-time low. And and I'm kind of afraid of what will happen if, if some of these things go down. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a little different situation with the pandemic. Uh, we've got public health experts and have been studying, you know, disease and pandemics for years and decades. And, you know, it's much more closer to the home than, let's say, you know, studying how, how did things uh, change, evolve, or get created, you know, m millions or billions of years ago. So, yeah. Um, uh, one of the other things uh, was um, the Hellbound movie. Yeah, I think you've already answered this question somewhat, but. Uh, what was it that made you to actually decide, okay, I've got to make a movie, a, a documentary about the doctrine of hell? Well, the real, uh, the final tipping point for me was I worked on a book by Brad Jerzak. So back in 2008, uh, Brad had written a book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem. And I was doing some book editing at the time. And uh, so I edited the book for Brad. And it was a real eye-opening experience for me because um, what Brad does in the book is something really simple is he says, well, uh, we have this idea of hell, where does it come from? Um, so what he does is he systematically looks at all the terms that are typically translated as hell in the old Testament and all the terms that are typically translated as hell in the new Testament. And of course there's the realization, the first realization there is that the word hell is not in the Bible anywhere. Um, there's just terms that are, have been translated as that over the years. He goes through each of these terms and he defines them. And that's a, such a great way to uh, engage in a debate is just to simply define terms. And you find that a lot of disagreements disappear in that process. And then he also looked at uh, different images of judgment. And then he looked at in how had these words and images been interpreted throughout the history of the church. And what he concludes is that there's, there's not a univocal voice that comes through the ages. There's a multiplicity of voices, depending on which 
uh, stream of tradition you look in. The Eastern Orthodox looks very different than the Western Church, and the Catholic Church looks very different than various streams of uh, Protestant uh, Christianity. And so I, I found reading that and discovering that so freeing. And I was kind of discovering the same thing about the atonement at the time, different views of the atonement, because I was raised, as perhaps you were, to think that there really is only one way to look at these things, mm -hmm. that uh, right. we're sinful, Jesus died to pay the penalty so that God doesn't have to send us to hell. We, we can either accept that or reject it, and we're going to have to pay the price ourselves. I thought that was the Christian story. And what I came away with, not just from Brad's book, but that was kind of the icing on the cake, was that uh, there's a tremendous amount of latitude to explore these things, uh, as well as the atonement. And so uh, it took me about three years before I could get into production on the film. We went into production in, uh, in basically, well, we started pre-production in February 2011. So it took me about three years to get there. But it, I felt like I was finally in a position to grapple with this question that had been bugging me since I first learned about hell when I was yeah, nine years right. old. Yeah, I, that's amazing. Um, it, it, what amazes me is that, you know, Brad's book, and there's several other books. Um, I didn't I didn't first see Brad's book, but I saw uh, uh, Thomas Talbot's book. I saw Inescapable Love of God. I saw uh, Robin Perry's book, who was in your film, and some other books. And, and, and it's the same thing. It's just like you're going, wait a minute. Uh, they didn't teach this in my evangelical Sunday school, <laughs> in sermons, in our churches, in our books, what, you know, why in the world was this stuff not taught? And of course, the reason is, is because uh, uh, the movement had kind of bought into these views of hell and the atonement. And many people in the movement, just like you, you said, to have no idea there's anything outside of it. And then other people probably who should know better, maybe the ones who went to seminary, aren't willing to bring it up. And it's just, it's just amazing. It's an it's a incredible phenomenon how religion can kind of box people in that way. Um, I, I, when I watched the movie Hellbound, uh, I love the way you uh, bring out the pros and cons of the different views and just let the chips fall where they may. You let the people speak and make their own arguments. You know, you got guys like Mark Driscoll in there, who's from Seattle at the time. He was in a church, he was the pastor of a Mars Hill church at that time, uh, which later on uh, imploded. That's another story. Mm -hmm. But you, you just let, you let people speak for themselves and speak in their case. And then just, they lay it out. And then, and then you bring in the other view and you lay it out. In, in doing that, what was the some of the more disturbing things that you learned uh, and, and important things? Yeah, well, I, the way I structured that film is kind of the way I, I structure anything I write is I, I use a, a dialectic. So thesis, antith antithesis, synthesis. And so I felt with Hellbound, what I, act one, I called certainty because there's a lot of people who are really certain about things. And act two was ambiguity and act three was humility because this is just so complicated that we can't, uh, you know, speaking with certainty about these types of things is, is kind of preposterous. But yes, in terms of disturbing things, I think the most disturbing thing was uh, just gaining a full understanding of Calvinism, I think, uh -huh. or, or what, yeah. what, what you might call Reformed Christianity. I mean, I'd, I'd encountered uh, a hardcore 
uh, Reformed Christian once in my past who, it was one of the most disturbing nights I think I'd ever spent with anyone just <laughs> discussing with him his views. And, uh, but then just going deep into, you know, the theology of people like Kevin DeYoung uh, or Mark Driscoll or, uh, uh, you know, some of these other people, uh, Justin Taylor. And uh, there's, there's kind of a machismo. I remember uh, one of them saying to me, you know, basically that I have the guts to believe this. You know, it's, it's a harsh truth, but it's the truth. And in a sense, you got to man up and believe yeah, it that, right. that, yep. that some people, you know, that just uh, most people, God hasn't chosen. And that's just the way it goes. And, uh, and, and just the callous indifference and, and also the um, just unending attempts to twist into a pretzel shape in order to somehow make God come out looking good in the face of yeah, right. uh, the, <laughs> the mass, uh, you know, immolation of humankind. It just, uh, it, it, it was astounding. Of the, it's, yeah, in spite of the cognitive dissonance of, of yeah. the whole doctrine. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, it's preposterous. I think one of the best critics of it is, uh, is uh, uh, David Bentley Hart, who's featured in my new film, JES USA. I mean, he pulls no punches with this type of stuff when he goes after it. And and uh, and also with with different views of hell that go along with it, um, in terms of just the absolute preposterousness and the horror of it. But again, the people who are involved in these things, and and I view myself very much in that category, is is that you almost get it brainwashed into a cult, and it's it's I, I felt I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person, and yet for years I was brainwashed into believing this stuff because. I just felt that was the story of the universe. And so I think that people who are into this reformed Christianity, they are, most of them, have, they're, they're in the worst of all possible worlds because they've been indoctrinated into this, but they've also been inoculated against anyone who might come and try and dissuade them from their beliefs. Um, yeah, yeah Because there's, there's always the backstop of hell. And so that the, there's a tremendous amount of fear that comes along with abandoning those beliefs. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to mock those people and to get angry at those people. But I think most of all, they deserve uh, pity and sympathy and empathy because they're, they're locked into a, a horrible thought prison. Yeah, it's definitely true. And I think the way one theory I have, the way it happens is that there's such a, uh, a focus on believing everything in the Bible the inerrancy of the Bible that they're trying to harmonize what I, what I call and what Michael Harden calls, who was also in Hellbound, a two-faced God. So, um, you know, they're trying to harmonize that two-faced God that they see in the scriptures and it, it, it's cognitive dissonance. It doesn't make any sense. And the only thing that makes sense in, in my mind is, is, is Jesus's love ethic kind of, kind of opens your eyes say oh okay god really isn't like that oh right but these people are trying to uh harmonize you know joshua in the in the the uh genocide of israel taking over the canaanite cities with jesus love ethic and this is what they came up with because to them uh the scriptures say, oh, only the elect make it, but then they don't realize, well, everyone is the elect, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So, and that's the point Paul is making in my mind. Um, very interesting. What, what's been the reception of that movie in, in, 
in uh, among conservative Christians? Well, Christianity Today um, gave us a pretty uh, negative review. I mean, again, unfortunately, that review is written by Mark Golley, who had written a book uh, that uh, took a very different view of hell. So there was no way it was going to go in our favor. And he, he criticized the film for not coming down hard on a particular view and for having an open end. He felt that the movie was doomed to fail because of that, which I found kind of interesting because most people don't want propaganda. They want something that's going to provoke thought. But apparently, right. I, I guess right. Christianity today wants propaganda. But uh, apart from them, uh, we had actually um, quite a strong positive reaction. You know, we got some of the strongest positive reactions from, uh, for instance, publications like Variety, which is an in entertainment, uh, it covers mm. the entertainment industry. And we got this really interesting uh, long review by Justin Chang, who I found out later was a graduate of uh, Fuller uh, Seminary. So I guess that's oh, why, interesting. Okay. why he uh, engaged with the film. I was so astounded to yeah. read it. Uh, but yeah, but overall from, you know, uh, mainstream press, uh, you know, quote unquote, secular media, we got quite a positive response. Um, personally, uh, I had some pretty significant problems in the church I was attending at the time uh, as a result of the film. And, uh, you know, it, it definitely caused some friction in my different relationships. But overall, I mean, the film has been, uh, what's eight years now. Um, and it's still kind of being discovered and rediscovered by different people. And I've received a lot of uh, emails and messages from people who have just feel it just played a really significant role in their faith journey um, out of, you know, certain toxic ways of thinking about God and theology. So it's, it's uh, quite gratifying to see it still playing that yeah. sort of role. I think it definitely is effective. And so definitely we at the spiritual group hub, uh, endorse this film and encourage you to see it if you haven't already and if you've already seen it see it again because you only learn something new the second time you see it <laughs> um so let's talk about the film you just finished this year uh j-e-s-u-s-a um what drove you to make that film and what it was there a connection in your mind between hellbound and that what how did that play out well, I like the way you put things at the beginning of the podcast saying uh, Hellbound is, is looking at the way God deals with the problem of evil and, and JES USA looks at how humans deal with the problem of evil. And, and I, I've kind of said all along that JES USA is my quasi sequel to Hellbound um, yeah. because it's really, you know, Hellbound's looking at the question of divine violence. And can we imagine that God could find a way of dealing with evil that's better than the way we deal with evil because we tend to deal with evil through violence, um, mm -hmm. physical violence or social violence or verbal violence or something like that. And so, yeah, I felt that I wanted to take the question further that if we are to, to imitate God, how do we imitate God on earth in terms of how do we, how we deal with the problem of evil. Now the film is called JES USA because it's looking at uh, the relationship between Christianity and the United States Anytime, you know, since Christian, since the Christian church began, it's always existed within, uh, you know, some kind of an empire. And so it started out in the Roman Empire. First, it was an object of persecution within the empire, but eventually it became actually a partner with the empire and then began persecuting on behalf of the empire. But uh, I, I, what I wanted to look at uh, was the particular challenges faced by Christians living in 
you know, what I guess we're looking at now is a waning empire in the world, but one of the last great empires in the world, which is the United States of America. And there's a real problem that we have as Christians living in a secular state because um, the foundation of the secular state is violence. As uh, Brian Bourne says, sorry, not Brian Bourne, Brian Zahn says in JESUSA, the lines on the map of the world tell a bloody tale of battles won and, and uh, battles lost. And so our organizing principle in the world, the way we define nations and the way we reinforce the boundaries of nations is through violence. But the kingdom of God functions according to a very different ethic. So nations will always sacrifice. Nathan, nations will sacrifice others for the survival of the nation. They will sacrifice people within the nation and they, were, they will sacrifice people outside of the nation. But the ethic of the kingdom of God is, is not sacrifice of the other, but self-sacrifice for the other. So the way I look at it is, uh, uh, if anyone remembers the great uh, movie, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, yep. when uh, Spock is about to sacrifice himself for the sake of the enterprise, he says, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Well, that's, I think that sounds like a really noble thing coming from someone who is willing to lay down their lives for someone else. But it sounds like a horrific thing when, if it's the crew of the Enterprise turning around and saying to Spock, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, and shooting them off into space to save themselves. But that's the kind of the way we are as a society. And uh, so what, what the film looks at is, how do Christians exist in a world where the organizing principle is violence, when the organizing principle of the kingdom that we claim to be citizens of is the antithesis of that violence? Well, yeah, I mean, um, you put it well, sacrifice for others, sacrifice others for the sake of the nation or, or sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. Um, what, what you just shared reminds me, uh, when I first became a born again Christian uh, in my 20, early 20s, I sat down and I read the Gospels and the New Testament in just a day or two. and I walked away, blown away, and I almost immediately became a pacifist. Mm. I w it was like, you know, we had just ended the Vietnam War a few years earlier, and, you know, we, I was kind of grew up in the Vietnam War, and, and, uh, and I, I just thought to myself, man, if I'm really serious about this following Christ, I can't, I could never go to war. You know, this is just completely antithetical to, to Jesus' teachings. And what, to, what I found out, I was a, you know, pretty naive uh, about the church and Christianity. I get into the church and no one's a pacifist. I'm the only one. I mean, was, I was like, really? I couldn't believe it. It was like, wait a minute, what, am I missing something? And then, you know, slowly but surely you get this narrative that's going around you know, like, well, even C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, wasn't a pacifist, and, and you, Mike, you're just being naive, you know, and so it, eventually I, I, I stopped my view of pacifism and, and basically came up with a just war theory, which then I found out later, no one really follows the just war theory um, when they go to war, um, but uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a it's, a, it's a, it's another thing that's what I call cognitive dissonance, and I think you bring it out in the film with some of the interviews, the dilemma 
that reveals how Christians, uh, you know, say they fight evil and, and defend wars in fighting evil as they claim to follow a pacifist Christ. And uh, that really came out strong in the, in the film. Uh, well, and, and, and again, those people would argue that Jesus is not, was not a pacifist, um, that we're getting that wrong, you know, you know and, and yes, as, I know that. As, yep, that was, and as, as, as somebody points out in the film, you know, really, the only thing you can point to in the Gospels where Jesus even displays a whiff of violence is in the cleansing of the temple. He fashions a whip and then he, he drives the animals out of the temple and uh, the money changers. And so the interesting thing, though, is that if you're going to use that as your foundation to say that, see, Jesus was violent, what you're actually pointing to is the exception. You're not pointing to the rule of his ministry. The rule exactly. of, his min of his ministry right. is always questioning those who are about right. to use violence. Right. And what, what, what people tend to do, the reason why we resort to violence is we've come to a determination that the locus of evil is, is outside of us. It is located in someone else. And the way to get rid of the evil in the community is to do violence against that person. Hmm. Anytime Jesus found somebody in that position, he turned the tables so that rather than them pointing the finger at the person that they thought was the source of evil, he caused them to examine themselves. And so he did that over and over again. That was the rule of his ministry. So Jesus, his actions in the temple, not only did he not use violence against humans, he used the whip to drive out the animals. Um, it's, it's an exceptional moment. And he was acting out, you know, a prophetic, almost a prophetic pantomime um, in that moment. So, you know, I, yeah, so people would question whether or not Jesus is a pacifist. Um, and again, I, this is the other problem is I don't really like that word because pacifist sounds too much like passive which means that uh, right. doing nothing in the face of evil and Jesus. Yeah. He wasn't doing nothing. He was, he, you he know, confronted it very directly. Well, that's why he ended up on a cross because he was the biggest, exactly. he was the biggest threat to the religious and political authorities of his day. Like he was a badass shit disturber for lack of a better term. And that they knew if they didn't get rid of this guy, the whole, the whole system is going to come down because he's going around giving people a sense of their own value um, he's, uh, taking away their fear, uh, of, of death, their fear of the authorities. And so he's the worst guy to have running around if you're trying to, uh, be a dictatorial tyrant, because, you know, you need people to have a low view of themselves and, uh, to be subservient to authority and to be afraid of God and all these types of things. And Jesus is reversing all those things. And so he was right in the face of the authorities and had the harshest words, especially for the religious authorities who were pu were putting people in their place. And so he was he was a pacifist in the sense that he never resorted to violence, but he was very much a uh, I wouldn't say aggressive, but very assertive and creative thinker who confronted. He was very con confrontational. Yeah, and so I think, I, uh, yeah. I was going to say, I think Diane Butler Bass brought that out in the film and said that, you know, there's compassion, but it's, but he was always confronting evil. It wasn't, it was, it was uh, holding people to account to uh, evil and, and when people harm other, other people. And not to, not to destroy them. Like my, my favorite story in the gospels is the story of Zacchaeus. I mean, Zacchaeus was one of those people who was oppressing his own and Jesus by just by calling him out and identifying him and humanizing him, 
again, because Zacchaeus could very easily have become a scapegoat of the people. But just like all the other potential scapegoats, Jesus humanizes him and completely transforms his life rather than demonizes him, which is what we tend to do. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, it, uh, it reminds me of uh, Daryl Davis. Have you heard of Daryl Davis? Yes, he's the uh, guy who's been converting uh, Ku Klux Klan members. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he's, he, he, uh, he, he befriends them and, and, and humanizes them, in a sense, by actually, you know, uh, res respecting them in the, in the sense of letting them talk and, and he, and he listens and he, but he asks, but at the same time, he asks very challenging questions that gets them to think, you know, and his big question is, why do you hate me when you don't even know me? And mm -hmm. so after they get to know him, it, they, they have to uh, accept the fact that, wait a minute, actually don't hate this guy, <laughs> you know? Um, it's it's a very interesting story. Uh, he, uh, if for people who don't know, he ended up basically converting about twenty or more Ku Klux Klansmen, and he has their robes in his closet. And, and he's uh, African American. And he is African American. And uh, he, um, so anyways, Daryl Davis, uh, go on YouTube and look it up. There's a TED Talks that, that he does. It's really good. Um, so, what do you think the root is of this? this theology of what we call redemptive violence, uh, where, where did that come from? Why is that in our, in our Christian society? Well, that's, that's something we explore in the film. This what Walter Wink called the myth of redemptive violence. And that's this idea that we can use evil to create good. And mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's a myth that really goes back to the earliest writings that we have of human beings. So some of the earliest mythology we have and in a lot of different creative or creation stories around the world, what you're going to find is that the creation story begins with the death and dismemberment of a God. Um, and so, or, you know, some kind of a, uh, a death of, you know, oftentimes it's twins, it's, it's rivals and one of them kills the other. And out of that death comes order. And so there's chaos then there's violence, and then there's order. And there's this sense that that is um, how we organize the world. Uh, Rene Girard, um, who uh, developed something called mimetic theory, he talks about the same sort of thing as well. Right. Mm -hmm. That the thing that caused us to become humans was uh, the identification of a scapegoat. Because what happens is once we gain a certain level of self-awareness, <clears throat> we, we tend to imitate each other. And that imitation leads to rivalry. And so soon we find ourselves in a situation where it's a war of all against all. And so rather than destroy ourselves, we tend to center our aggression on a scapegoat. And our, we focus all of our violence on that person or persons. And when we expend the violence on those people, what do we find? We find peace because we found unity uh, around a common enemy. So there's a sense that out of violence comes something good. And so we we tend to repeat that scapegoating ritual, which eventually calls becomes something we call religion as a way of inoculating ourselves against the chaos that threatened to destroy us at the beginning. So the myth of redemptive violence is something that's very ancient that now manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. I mean, uh, we see it in, you know, classic superhero stories and that sort of thing where uh, people keep trying to create order by using violence. The good thing about today's films and stories is that 
I think many people, uh, particularly outside of religion, are increasingly skeptical of the myth of redemptive violence because we recognize that, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, violence, um, it can solve no social problem. All, all it ever does is create new and more complicated problems. And so the more we try to apply violence, um, the, the more, this is what Walter Wink says, is that our victories that we, we win through violence actually become a model for others. Um, and so the, one of the most dangerous things we can do is to defeat somebody through violence because our victory becomes a model for someone else who's going to now bring an even greater form of violence against us. And so the question is, how do we escape this? So I think America is just playing out a script that goes back to the history of, you know, the earliest aspects of humankind. And I think Christianity, through its collusion with empire throughout most of its existence, going back to, uh, you know, the time of Constantine, has really bought into this. And so I think very early in its history, Christianity got hijacked by the myth of redemptive violence. And that yeah. helped create our theology about hell. It helped create our theology about the atonement. And it helped justify... Christian participation in state violence. And right. so what we're trying to do in JES, JES USA, the title is a statement of the problem, is that Jesus and the and USA have become so blended together that they're seamless. So the question is, how do you separate them? How do we how do we separate ourselves from this collusion with with the state? Right. Um, yeah, that you said a lot there. Uh, you know, it, I wanted to say a thing about, go back to this idea of Jesus being a pacifist. Uh, one of the things that I uh, advocate is looking at history. And when you look at the history of the early church, you discover that uh, for 200 years, the, the first Christians were all pacifists. They did not engage in, in war. They did not join the Roman military uh, that came later. And, uh, and so, you know, when we think about, oh, what was Jesus a pacifist or what? You know, one of the things we need to do is go back and, and look at what history tells us and teaches us about uh, his first followers. Um, yeah, I think that's a, an important thing to point out because we can talk what we want about Jesus and, and what's going on in the Gospels and form different interpretations. But I think it's important to ask, how did his, the earliest interpreters, exactly right. uh, what views did they come to? And yeah, definitely until Christianity was... Uh, I would say co-opted by empire, uh, it was pacifist because Christians were being persecuted by the authorities. So there was no incentive to join the authorities. That's right. And then later on, going down history, um, you know, you talked about Christianity got entwined with the empire through Constantine and the Roman, uh, eventually the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but then the reform, Reformation came. And when we were, you know, when I was in the evangelical, evangelical church, they said, oh, the, the, the uh, reformers, they, they straightened out everything. They corrected everything. <laughs> they got it right. Now we're, about, right. now we're on the right track. Well, not exactly. I mean, if you look at the history, you realize that the, the reformers did do some good things but they didn't go nearly far enough in a lot of areas, including redemptive violence and other areas as well. Doctrine of hell being one of them. Um, so I think, you know, we, we're, we're, you've identified why our society kind of has this in, ingrained. And it, it struck me in the beginning of the film, how you showed this 
what looked like a, a church group that was at the at the rifle range practicing uh, shooting, and then they had gotten a circle and prayed or something. Was that a real group that you found that was advocating, um, you know, arming Christians? Yes, that was a real group. That was uh, Sean Moon's church out in Newfoundland, Pennsylvania. And they made headlines back in 2018 because they had a marriage rededication ceremony where husbands and wives uh, rededicated themselves to God. And they were encouraged to bring along a rod of iron, uh, quote unquote, which often took the form of an AR-15. And oh they had gosh. they have this theology of uh, uh, that goes back really to an Old Testament understanding uh, of things where men and women are kings and queens within mm -hmm. uh, God's kingdom, and therefore they have the rights of kings and queens, which are to own land and to protect that land through the use of force. And so that's by no means are they a mainstream church, and I don't portray them as being mainstream uh, in the. In, uh, in the film, but they do have that belief. And there's a lot of, I, I, I also feature some guys in the film who are from a group called Sheepdog Seminars. And they have this idea that the world or humans can be broken down into three categories. There's sheep, which is most of us. There's uh, wolves, which are the few bad apples. And there are sheepdogs. And sheepdogs are those who use violence uh, in a redemptive way against those who are evil. So they protect the flock. And so, you know, one thing you'll see with Christians who are advocates of violence is that um, because they have, uh, you know, imbibed a Christian ethic, they believe that, uh, you know, you should love God and love your neighbors, you love yourself. Um, and one way to love your neighbor is to protect your neighbor. So they don't use violence as a way of dominating or uh, taking things from others or what, or what, what have you they will make an allowance to use violence to protect what they love, to protect the flock. So that tends to be the way it's used. And um, so there's a sense of an honorable desire um, that, that's behind it. And none of these guys would say that violence is their first resort, but they feel it's to not have it as a resort would be foolhardy. And right. And again, I think one of the problems that they're operating from is that the primary directive for them is self-preservation. <clears throat> and that is the highest good is that we must uh, protect. Um, whereas, again, we have to go back to what did Jesus call us to? He said, anyone who would follow me must take up his cross or her cross and, and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. So in other words, you need to take up the means of your own execution. Um, and that in a sense, following me is a death sentence. Um, Self-preservation doesn't enter the picture. And every one of the disciples, except for John, who ends up getting exiled, lived that out, um, that they were uh, executed for their faith. And, and, you know, the first generations of Christians, by and large, endured much of the same sort of treatment. That's a horrifying thing to think about. But this is the call. Um, we're not just called to love our neighbors. We're called to love our enemies. And um, we're not called to kill our enemies. And we're called to love our enemies in the hope that our enemies themselves might be saved from the evil in which they find themselves. Um, that's the ultimate love that we can show another human being. Um, we're probably going to die. The first few people who are going to try and show that kind of love to our enemies are going to die. But eventually, as the earliest Christians showed, even something as, as diabolical as the Roman Empire could eventually be won over. Um, to what was going on within the church at the time. Unfortunately, the church kind of got 
hijacked as well, but there was uh, a mediating force that happened when Christianity partnered with the Roman Empire that helped to at least make it somewhat more humane. So I, I think this is one of the issues, again, we run into is, is the highest calling of Christian self-preservation or is it self-sacrifice? Because if it's self-preservation, we automatically find ourselves in a defensive position. And that is not the position that Jesus adopted or his disciples adopted. Yeah, that's, that's put very well. Um, the, uh, the dilemma, um, there are a couple things. One thing is that the, you know, you might have a high, um, and there might be some justification to, you know, defend your family or whatever with, with violence. And, um, and some people are advocate that and they think, well, that's, that's a last resort or, or whatever. But we have in our culture almost a, a knee-jerk reaction to our country going to war. And almost with very few exceptions, we all accept it like it, uh, it, it, without even asking, well, does it, does it meet the just war theory, for example? You, have, you had Billy Graham praying at the Gulf War uh, with uh, George H.W. Bush at the start of the Gulf War you know, just, just for the sake, the fact that he was praying kind of endorsed it. Right. And we have mm -hmm. this, we've had this throughout our history. And, um, and even in, in the, you know, the black lives matter movement, we were, is really, a, um, a response to the violence that we see in, in police forces. Right. And then the, and then we've got the, the peaceful protesters. And then we also have, the ones who resort to violence because eventually something boils over. So we really, as a society, have not gotten a handle on what this, what you're calling a, a maybe a peacemaking ethic. Uh, Martin Luther King, he got it and his movement got it, but not all the civil rights movement got it. Uh, Gandhi, he got it, but you know, these are exceptions, not the rule for, for our society. And we, we like to emulate people like Martin Luther King, but most of us don't really grapple with it. Well, what is the, what was his strategy? What was his, uh, what was, what was the way he was confronting evil? And am I really following that or not? And well, uh, it's just, yeah, go ahead. Well, that's the problem with violence is that it feels like the natural thing to do. It feels like the default position of the world. It feels like when I use violence, I am gaining control of the situation. And, and I think that the problem with using violence as our last resort is that when you're put in a situation where you're afraid, it becomes the, the first resort. It becomes the thing you turn to because it feels like it's the thing that gives you the most, right, yeah. the highest level of control. And, yeah. and, and, and there's also, we just run out of patience. And uh, when we want to see social change and it's not happening at the pace that we think it should be, we take matters into our own hands. And I would say that as much as Black Lives Matter is a response to violence, it also can become quite violent in the sense that it, uh, and I don't necessarily mean a few people looting and that sort of thing, but it can become uh, a form of uh, a mob rule in terms of we identify uh, scapegoats and we go after them, forget about due process. We don't have time for due process because we know what's what. And I think that whenever we, whenever we find ourselves forming mobs, whether in the real world or online, 
or somewhere like that and abandoning due process and just making decisions about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, we are in a very, very dangerous position because at that point, we are so convinced that we occupy the moral high ground that we think that we are actually incapable of evil. And let me tell you, every evil act that has been performed in the history of the world was done by people who thought, without a doubt, that they occupied the moral high ground. And so they had stopped examining themselves because they felt that they had found the locus of evil and it was in the other. So now they have to go after the other. Right. And, yep. and, then, and then the world will be good. Well, that is the myth of redemptive violence right there. And it can be perpetuated by people who are reacting against violence as, it, as much as it is by people who initially perpetuate violence. That's right. That's why you have to really think through a peacemaking ethic. Yes. Or if you don't, you will, you will become afraid and you'll react naturally. And that will be most likely violence or some, 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 some kind of aggression yeah. that's not peacemaking. Yeah, so that's really why you need to grapple with it before it happens. Um, one of the toughest objections is, you, is, is when people say, yeah, but what about my family? Wouldn't, I, I, would, I wouldn't hesitate to use violence to protect my family. Well, you know, I wish I could have put it in the film, but Preston Sprinkle, who I uh, feature in the film, he had, he had, when we filmed the interview with him, we, he had a long response to that question, which was pretty hilarious. But he just, he breaks that situation down. You know, somebody breaking into your house with a, with a gun, he wants to rape your wife and kill your kids. What are you going to do? And um, he just, he, he breaks down every element of that situation to show <clears throat> how laughable it is, number one, that that situation would ever happen. I mean, that just, it's number one, it's, it's, it's a vanishingly small uh, probability of that happening. But number two, um, you know, thinking about uh, how many people who own a firearm, for instance, are actually qualified to use that firearm. Um, and in a way that wouldn't actually cause more harm than good. I would argue almost nobody who owns a firearm uh, could could because even uh, a soldier or a police officer undergoes uh, training year after year after year when they're put in a combat situation um, freeze or find themselves acting in completely irrational ways so the average citizen um, trying to use uh, a weapon of deadly force in that type of a situation is almost always going to make the situation worse rather than better and, uh, you know, never mind the fact that the person who is trying to perpetuate the violence very often is, you know, is desperate and using a threat of violence, never intending to actually carry out the violence until perhaps violence is brought against him or her, which forces the issue. So in almost any way you look at that situation, by you trying to introduce deadly force, you're about to make a terrible situation 10 times worse. So just from a logical point of view, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah, I, I, you have to think it through, like you said. And I, I've read Preston's, uh, Pre, uh, was it Preston's book? And, and um, uh, yeah, he does make that, uh, uh, he just kind of picks it apart. And when, he, when you read it, it's like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it doesn't quite make sense. No. Um, anyways, we're running out of time, Kevin. Um, I'm reminded that this... Uh, uh, you know, your, your, your film is really great material for my next book, which is going to be on the, uh, the scandal of what I call violent sacrificial religion. 
Mm. Um, it's just another way of saying redemptive violence, but and 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 how it's really ingrained and embedded and baked in their popular theology. Uh, so you're giving me a lot of material in this film and uh, all the all the people you interviewed. What was the name of the guy with the with the beard who you interviewed? I I didn't I don't remember his name, but he he was very powerful in what he was uh, uh, expounding. Yeah, his name is uh, David Bentley Hart, and so David he's a okay. yeah he's an Orthodox uh, theologian, philosopher, expert in the classics. Uh, I always say he's the kind of guy that has a governor in his brain that he has to engage whenever he talks to regular people like me. Um, so he's a <clears throat> very brilliant, probably one of the most influential living theologians today. So it was a real treat to uh, yeah to be able to interview him for the film. Yeah, he was spot on. Well, let's see. My last question is: what's what's been the reception of, of this film? Um, you know what? We're in the early phases still of release. So we released in March. And uh, unfortunately, at this point, we're only available on Vimeo on demand. Uh, we will be available on Amazon, iTunes, uh, Google Play. Uh, we've just been delayed by the pand pandemic like everyone else. So we will be available later this summer, early this fall. Uh, but so far, the reaction to the film has, has been positive. I mean, there's definitely been some pushback, of course. Uh, you know, some kind of violent pushback in some cases, but uh, overall, I think it's um, it's kind of like Hellbound in the sense that people watch this film and they're really challenged by it and, um, and kind of excited to discover that there's more than one way to look at this issue. And that's really what I wanted to do in the film yeah, is to say- I think you do a really good job with that because most people don't even know that there is a, you know, cogent enough. case <laughs> yeah. on the other side. And this is really a good case in the movie. Well, so- and, 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 and I think that, you know, people on, on both sides make a mistake. There, there's this idea that we can create a utopia uh, by, by going to, to one extreme or the other. And I, and I think that you have to be careful that nonviolence is not an end in itself. Nonviolence is an outflow of the kingdom. And it's an outflow of loving God and loving your neighbors yourself. It's not, so nonviolence shouldn't be separated out from the rest of Christ's program. It's, it's really just a kind of a natural consequence of yeah. imitating Christ. Right. So it's available on Vimeo, um, and it will be available on Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play pretty soon. Yes. Um, and uh, post-COVID, are you going to be t taking it to theaters? Is it going to are we going to be able to see this in a theater somewhere? No, we will not go to theaters. What we our big lesson from Hellbound was that people like to uh, digest this content at home and in small groups and in churches and that sort of thing. So right. that's okay. that's where we're going to stay. Right. Cool. Well, thank you, Kevin. This has been a great conversation. Um, what are you doing next? You got another project in the works? I don't have another film project in the works. It's pretty hard to make a documentary in this situation because uh, it requires a lot of travel and interacting with people in confined spaces. Um, but I, I'm actually an author as well. I have a series of novels uh, for middle grade readers. So I'm actually working on the fifth novel of my series right now. So that's kind of what I'm uh, focused on at the moment. Very nice. So do you have a website, Kevin? Yeah, uh, you can find me at KevinMillerXI, excuse me, KevinMillerXI.com. KevinMillerXI.com. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for joining us here on the, on the Spiritual Brew Pub. I wish we could have uh, um, had a real beer together. Uh, oh, me too. Yeah. This conversation. <laughs> but we uh, will give you a, a virtual toast here. Um, congratulations on the new film and uh, we will uh, keep in touch definitely and have you back sometime and folks uh, we're going to 
sign off now. I want to encourage everyone to check out both of Kevin's films and uh, Hellbound and JES USA. And you're going to really, they're definitely educational and you're really going to get a, 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 a new view of, of all these issues that we've talked about. So Kevin, we'll see you next time too. And everyone, we'll see you next time on, on the podcast. Enjoy responsibly. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.